Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 11th, 2009, and my guest is Paul Collier of Oxford University. He's the author. His most recent book is Wars, Guns, and Votes, Democracy in Dangerous Places. Paul, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks very much. Uh, your book starts by noting the uh, spread of democracy as a recent phenomenon and how encouraging we at least thought that was initially, but ultimately we were a little disappointed. So what happened? Uh, what was what would cause that spread and why is it disappointing? Well, the spread is no um, surprise. And the spread occurred as a result of the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, first democracy um, spread in Eastern Europe directly as a result of the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And then that gave courage to democracy movements across the world. And so a lot of the societies of the bottom billion um, moved to democracy um, really quite rapidly. The bottom billion, um, you mean the poorest people in the world? I mean, by the bottom billion, I mean sort of about 60 little countries that, um, that failed to uh, grow for one reason or another. They were in various traps that I discussed in my previous book, The Bottom Billion. In a previous podcast, which is, uh, we'll put a link to it. Yeah. And, um, and, and so a lot of these countries had been autocracies um, run by narrow elites that had run the economy in their own self-interest. Um, and so like many people, I was very hopeful that the spread of democracy um, would, would quite rapidly lead to fundamental changes in economic policy that would bring prosperity to these societies. Um, like many people, I diagnosed the sort of the core problem as being a, a, a political problem of the concentration of power in self-serving elites. But it didn't turn out so well. Why not? I think the um, we we missed the the true nature of democracy, which is we we emphasised elections. Um, now, of course, elections are are fundamental. They are the technology, the institutional technology by which citizens hold governments to account. Um, but they're only part of a of a properly functioning democracy because um, elections um, are supported by a range of institutional checks and balances. Um, which um, which have a number of functions. One is they prevent majorities tyrannizing minorities, but they also prevent uh, incumbent governments from winning elections by um, breaking the rules. Um, now, what we didn't really appreciate sufficiently, I think, was that um, elections uh, are remarkably easy to conduct almost anywhere. Um, so um, even in 
post-conflict Iraq, um, in Afghanistan, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, it was possible to to hold elections with with quite levels of high levels of turnout. Um, the the incentives for political parties to take part in these elections are very strong. Um, so, in, in one sense, we were able to conduct or get elections conducted in these societies um, much more readily than had been imagined. Um, but the institutions that provide the checks and balances are a very different story. Elections are events. Uh, checks and balances are processes. Um, elections, they're very strong in private incentives for political parties to take part. Checks and balances are public goods. It's nobody's incentive to provide them. And indeed, it's, uh, there's quite strong incentives for governments to resist them. Yeah, I'm reminded of John Mueller's uh, observation in his book Capitalism, Democracy, and Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery where he talks about Mexico, which he says – I think it's his quote or at least he quotes someone – Mexico and he's talking about I think Mexico in the 80s when there was basically one party. I think it was the PRI if I remember. Um, Mexico was a democracy 364 days a year. And the one day it wasn't was, of course, election day because yeah. everyone knew how that would turn out. The rest of the year, actually, there were some checks and balances. Uh, they were subtle and hard perhaps to observe, and uh, they weren't as dramatic an event, as you point out, as an election. But those checks and balances are what often really matter. Uh, they're institutional and cultural and all kinds of subtle and complex processes, and the election themselves are somewhat um, – they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. Yeah. So in the first few years of, uh, of democracy in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the new democracies, um, I think um, elections had some, some big payoffs. Um, you know, some uh, old autocrats uh, stood for election thinking that their people loved them and lost. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, but that didn't persist because I think um, a lot of incumbent leaders uh, woke up to the fact that there were easier ways of winning an election than uh, than the obvious one of being a good government. Yeah. So in the in the book, you have this very charming uh, thought experiment of of putting yourself in the shoes of a of a dictator or a thug and contemplating this pressure to uh, to to turn democratic. And you list the various options in a in a cost benefit analysis. Uh, can you walk us through those? Because it's it's very it's delightful. Yes. Um, the so option one is is to turn over a leaf and be a good government. Um, and Novel there are thought. The, yeah. there are there are pros and cons to that. I mean, the um, the pro is that um, uh, that's obviously what people want. Um, Some and, of them, anyway. Yeah, and and um, and I should say also there's there's there's, there's some some evidence that it's it, it, to an extent it works um, where elections are properly conducted, um, people are more likely to vote for an incumbent if um, if the economy has recently been growing than if it's recently been stagnant. Uh, so good economic performance does increase the expected duration in office. Um, 
so that's the pros, but then there are some pretty big cons. Um, one is that um, the, if, the, if the incumbent has been sort of running the economy very badly for a long time, um, both his own skill set and the sort of organizations and support base um, are not designed to run the economy well. And it might be extremely difficult to do so. One of, one of the things that running the economy well would involve um, would be um, suppressing the, uh, the patronage um, of elite groups. And so the, the, the incumbent president might find himself weakening his own power base um, even as the performance of the economy improves. Um, another con is that um, even with good economic performance, um, uh, your chances of winning are very far from certain. Um, so uh, um, there might be more effective ways of, uh, of ensuring the uh, uh, a long duration in office. Yeah, I think it's, uh, in America at least, I don't know how it, how it's going across the pond there. But here in America, we're getting a very dramatic lesson in how difficult it is to measure whether someone's doing a good job with economic performance. The economy is doing very badly right now. Unemployment's growing. Uh, and that's either because the stimulus package isn't being implemented quickly enough and it isn't large enough and the government needs to do more, or because – the president inherited a really bad situation that turns out to be worse than we thought. And distinguishing between those two is, I'd say, impossible. Uh, yes, and, impossible. That's a, and that's a very good parallel with the, the typical society of the bottom billion in the 1990s where you had a, a long period of um, economic stagnation or decline, and the, the causes of that were contested. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think um, there was uh, that is a very good analogy with present-day America. If economists can't agree on it, what are the odds that the average voter is going to be uh, yeah, yeah. good at it? And so that's a it's a weak read for that for you to lean on as the as the dictator. So let's turn to option which is be a good be a good leader. Let's turn to option number two. So uh, option number two is lie, um, popular, and um, uh, of course the. Uh, one of the pros, um, lying is even easier in um, these societies than it is in our own, um, because the uh, the media is uh, is more restricted um, and more controlled by the uh, by the authorities. Um, so the the pro is that lying is easy, and of course there's a con, which is that you've been doing it such a long time that people don't believe you. They, people, people discount what you say. So it's an unreliable – it's worth doing, but it's not a reliable way of winning. But you're really good at it because you've been doing <laughs> yeah. it for so long. So it's kind of – there's some tension there. <laughs> um, but you can't rely on it because uh, uh, people have uh, – um, that people might not tell you, but they've, uh, they've lost confidence in what you say. Yeah, I've always found that fascinating actually and, I, and of course it's unknowable how much in an autocratic society where there is media control – by the state, how much the average person uh, believes or doesn't believe. And we have lots of anecdotal evidence that the average citizen in the Soviet Union was realized that Pravda really wasn't a great uh, source of, of reliable information. 
but you feel like in certain societies today there's a claim that that people are you know are more gullible i don't know if that's true i don't know what i don't think so um i, I don't, don't think, think so, so. I, I i um <laughs> uh i get a huge amount of email traffic from these societies uh on the whole the people who are sending me emails are not uh don't sound to me to be gullible yeah i, I um, find that argument they know what uh, they know what they're up against I, I agree with that. Uh, so let's option number three. You're you're a dictator. You're you're in a new situation. You're going to have maybe democracy, or you have it. Uh, which one of your what's option number three? Option number three is to scapegoat a minority, so that you try and um, whip up a, uh, a sort of populist um, support for yourself by um, identifying the problems of the society as due to some either 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 some internal minority or uh, some um, scapegoated foreign country uh, or foreign institution like the IMF. And pros and cons? Um, well, the pros are that you know, this, is, this is disturbingly successful. Um, you know, there's, there's a long history of, um, of majorities turning on minorities um, in the mistaken belief that the minority is the cause of their problems, so um, so we shouldn't underestimate the uh, the success of that electoral strategy. Um, the big con um, is that um, very often um, the um, incumbent rulers have have kind of depended upon um, some prominent minorities, especially um, ethnic business minorities. Um, for their own financial support, um, often um, autocrats have um, have actually favoured um, ethnic minority business people because, being from ethnic minorities, they can't build up a political power base. They can't threaten. It's the it's the uh, it's the businessmen from the majority ethnic group that are the menace. Um, yeah, they're the parasites. They're the rent seekers. The other guys are the. Or have the potential to be productive as a way of earning their money. Um, it's more than that. It's that the um, the ethnic minority businessmen are often um, kind of, if you like, um, provide payrolling the um, the patronage system of the incumbent president, uh, and so you don't want to weaken that ethnic minority too much. You don't want to turn populist forces against it. Um, like so they shut up. It would end up. Cutting off the spigot. Exactly, exactly. So we turn to option number four. Okay. Bribery. So option number <laughs> four, bribery. Um, the, um, uh, the, the pro is that um, this plays to one of your key advantages over the opposition. Um, you've got more money um, as long as you can embezzle the public purse. Yep. Um, so you can, uh, in, the, in this wonderful phrase uh, you can bribe people with their own money um yeah it's 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 like when the yeah it's like when the guy promises to uh, watch your car uh in in a parking lot uh or on a, a city street he'll he'll prevent it from being vandalized if you give him some money it's a lovely uh it's kind of yes, similar that's right <laughs> that's right and what's going to happen if you do yeah, yeah exactly um a little moral the, hazard problem there so that's right. it, what are the and the, but the cons are fascinating so there's, there's kind of two cons, really. I mean, one is it kind of might 
might come expensive. Um, uh, and the other is that um, kind of can you trust people um, if you if you give them money um, and they say they'll vote for you? Um, how can you tell that they actually will? Um, uh, now. Um, People from my own research group have, have sort of studied the efficacy of, of bribery, um, and um, unfortunately, on the whole, we've, we've, they've found that um, the bribery is effective. Um, there's one. Um, sometimes um, the new technologies actually favour bribery. So, in, in some parts of the world, um, mobile phones are used to actually photograph the ballot paper inside the, 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 the voting booth so that as it were, you have to produce evidence as to how you voted. Um, but the other thing is that a lot of people um, in these societies kind of regard a deal as, um, as giving some sort of moral responsibility um, to, a, to adhere to the, uh, to the deal. So that if a politician says, well, here's the money, will you vote for me? And you say yes, then kind of you feel ethically obliged to do so. It's bizarre, yeah. but isn't it right? It's sort of an honor among thieves idea, right? Somebody suborns you, and uh, you, you feel ethically bound to be suborned. I think that there's, um, and don't forget, in a lot of these societies, there's a kind of tradition of the big man um, uh, providing patronage to the clients, the patron client relationships. And so, um, voter bribery kind of fits naturally into the ethical framework of patron-client relationships. Um, people are not coming at um, voting from a long history of clean democracy. They're coming at democracy afresh from a history of patron-client relationships. And so they're used to doing deals. I can't help but think of the city of Chicago. I, I, what, you know, what's... what's all of your examples, of course, are from uh, very poor countries, many or most from Africa. But, um, of course, in America and other developed countries, there is literal bribery there, not, of the kind you're talking about, not where I give you $25 and walk you into the booth and, and watch you complete the deal. But people just give out money uh, when they take them to the booth, and they assume, and I think correctly – that people are going to feel warm towards the person who gave them the money or the turkey or whatever it is, and they follow through even in a secret ballot system. Yes. I mean, I think that um, the, the illicit strategies that I go through are by no means confined to the societies of the bottom billion. Of course not. Um, I think they're more pronounced there because the institutions which curtail that behavior are weaker. Yeah. Um, so, um, so it's certainly not a, a sort of them versus us story, yeah, sure. but it's a, it's a story of um, the struggle to build institutions which restrain the very strong incentives for incumbent politicians to use these tactics. Well, let's move on to option five, uh, intimidation. Okay, so intimidation is kind of at the kind of the opposite <laughs> of bribery. They both work. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> and you. Um, Yes, and you you use you can use both because you kind of um, bribe the marginal group and the um, and the and the clear supporters of the opposition you intimidate. Um, and the one big advantage of 
intimidation is that you can observe whether people vote, even if you can't observe how they vote. And especially in ethnically stratified societies where it's pretty clear who's going to vote against you, you know, which ethnic groups are going to vote against you, yep. you know, pretty, you can identify pretty clearly who you want to discourage from coming to the vote. Yeah, which neighborhoods are going to be exactly, uh, the most exactly. important. And you, you, know, you, you, you hire a, a, a bunch of thugs to intimidate and... Um, uh, quite small forces of intimidation can have quite big effects um, on on turnout. Um, so that sounds like a winner. What's what's the uh, what's the con there? Um, the it, I think first of all, it, just to say, it, I think it it can be a winner that um, we actually um, one of my colleagues here, Pedro Vicente, and I. Um, did a little experiment during um, the Nigerian presidential elections, which we expected would be violent, and they were. Um, and we teamed up with a, a local NGO to run a campaign against violence, which was distributed around the country on a randomized basis. So this was a randomized controlled experiment um, uh, designed to see how how effective violence was. So the first step was that this campaign did work. It reduced the level of violence and the fear of violence um, in this randomized group of constituencies. And then by comparing those constituencies with the, the control group, um, we could see what effect um, this reduced level of violence had uh, on voter turnout. Um, and what we found was there was a systematic effect that um, the politicians that were using violence, uh, it worked. Um, so the, where we were able to reduce that effect, um, the vote for the peaceful politicians went up and the vote for the um, uh, violent politicians went down. So, so the normal strategy of violence works. What's the con, you ask? Um, the con is that two can play at that game. Um, and it's not clear that the incumbent has an advantage. Um, ultimately, the incumbent has an advantage because he can resort to the intimidation of the of the of the forces, the public forces of, of violence, the police and the army. Uh, and of course, in the second round of the Zimbabwean elections, that's what Mugabe did. Um, he turned to to violence. Uh, big time. Um, but in less extreme conditions, um, the opposition might actually have an advantage in violence because um, the presumption must be that the opposition has more supporters than the government. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to worry about this whole menu of options. Right. Which leads us to option six, restrict the field to exclude the strongest candidates. Yeah, and that's uh, um, uh, got a long pedigree of success. Um, can kill the, them. That would be one way, which happens tragically, right? Yeah. In the, um, I mean, in the book, I have a, a chapter on uh, the, the the meltdown in Cote d'Ivoire, um, where um, all these tactics were pursued, but especially the exclusion of candidates, and um, um, 
that, that, that um, the incumbent, um, President Gbagbo, uh, still wanted to conduct a contested... I'm, I'm sorry. Um, the incumbent at the time was President Gay, and he wanted to have a contested election, but he didn't want to face the two candidates who were really likely to win, um, which were um, uh, former President uh, Bedier and uh, former Prime Minister Ouattara. And so he, uh, he banned both of them, and then he looked around for, for some somebody who he could run against who he'd be sure to win against, and, uh, and that was where um, Bagbo, who'd previously very heavily lost an election, um, came forward and offered to stand. Um, and uh, Gay's tragedy was that he, he actually lost to Gbagbo. He um, probably neglected to take into account how people would perceive his banning of the other two more exactly, attractive candidates. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, I think in the book I, I also give the, the example of, um, of former President Abacha of Nigeria who, yep. who went the whole hog um, and, uh, and banned everybody but still was going to have a, a multi-party election. So he set up five political parties each of which happened to choose him as huh? its presidential candidate. What happens in a real democracy? Sometimes, you know, a party will get uh, – a candidate will get the liberal or the conservative party's nomination in America along with the Republican or Democrat. and So they get a couple endorsements. So here he got all of them. He got That's all great. of them. That's right. That's right. And, Gosh, he's talented. Uh, unfortunately, he dropped dead of a heart attack before he was able to go through with this, um, which was a sort of constitutional innovation in multi-party dictatorship. He was overwhelmed by the love of his people, no doubt. Yeah, and which gives us brings us to the final option, ever popular again, uh, which is uh, miscounting the votes. Yes, and um, could be called the LBJ solution. <laughs> again, I, I always like to remind people that that if you if you have not read Robert Caro's uh, multi-volume biography of LBJ, it is a bit daunting. You might think LBJ is not the most interesting character you're, in the world. You're wrong. He is one of the most interesting, certainly, uh, and Caro uses LBJ as a way to portray both power and American political uh, machinations and culture all through the 20th century. It's an amazing book, and his uh, portrait of LBJ as an election stealer in uh, almost every election he was in, pretty amazing. He, he got a great pleasure from it. It's quite, quite extraordinary. Sorry, I just had to put in that plug. No, no. I, 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 well, that is, a, again, a sort of salutary reminder that these problems are by no means unique um, to the societies of the bottom billion. Um, and the, the ballot fraud is, is miscounting the votes is very tempting because typically the incumbent will control the, the local institutions, the local uh, authorities, and uh, he may not even need to try very hard because the local authorities have for years been trying to, to please um, the incumbent leader. And so um, there might even be competition amongst um, local um, leaders to, to deliver as many votes as possible, um, even if the uh, incumbent president doesn't um, uh, pressure for it. It's a very important point. Uh, I think underappreciated in... in 
in thuggish uh, hierarchy, hierarchical systems that entrepreneurship takes place of that kind, that people are going to be as innovative and creative as possible in ways to, to curry favor with the hander out of the goodies and um, – there doesn't have to be a top-down order. It, That's it, right. I mean, there's competitive psychophancy, basically. Yeah, it's very depressing. So um, we've touched on it, but you have a lot of – I'd like you to talk more on the role of ethnicity. Um, a lot of interesting things to say about ethnic, identi- ethnic identity and, and their role – its role in both politics and nation and state building. What are some of the challenges and um, – and things we've learned about that. Yes, I think the um, um, there's there's both micro and macro evidence that um, where um, subnational identities um, are very strong relative to national identity, um, it's harder for people to cooperate, um, and that that process reduces the supply of public goods. Um, there's, uh, there's plenty of really good evidence on that. Um, but I think it also tends to contaminate the, the politics because um, uh, votes tend to be sort of frozen into blocks um, which are um, locked in by allegiance rather than voting on the basis of performance. And that, of course, reduces the role of competition. And you give the uh, you give that nice example of yourself. I think as a Yorkshireman. Uh, That's right. I mean, it's a question of whether um, I, as a Yorkshireman, um, voted against the uh, the uh, the Yorkshireman who was standing as uh, for the, for, to become prime minister, um, uh, because although I'm strongly identify as a Yorkshireman, it doesn't affect my political behavior. Whereas um, in, the, uh, I mean, in the recent Kenyan elections, um, which you remember sort of blew up into a lot of post-election violence, um, we did survey work there. And the, one, of, one of the most um, disturbing results was that um, was just how strong ethnic voting was. So for example, amongst the amongst the Luo, ninety eight percent of the Luo um, voted for Odinga, the Luo candidate. Um, ninety eight. Even though, when you actually asked for their approval ratings of uh, of President Kibaki, the the, uh, the, the Kikuyu president, um, uh, they gave Kibaki quite good. Um, uh, approval rating. Um, now, people were also very much in denial because if you ask them what's the basis for, for your voting, almost nobody said ethnicity. They came up with a catalogue of, um, you know, we vote on economic performance, we vote yeah. on this and that. Um, but when it came down to it, um, uh, ethnic vote, ethnic identity really um, was, was quite a powerful um, explanation for how people voted. And when you cast your vote as a Yorkshireman for the non-Yorkshireman candidate, uh, any guilt there? Of course not. Not, a, not, not did, any of your, did any of your fellow Yorkshiremen mention it to you? And, and Not at all. No. I, don't think, I don't think it was a, 
consideration for a moment in the, in the minds of anybody. Um, and and it, it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, it, it, it's 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 perfectly possible to build um, national identity up. Um, and Ted Ted Miguel has this very nice work comparing um, Kenya with with Tanzania, where at the start of independence they both had a lot of ethnic groups, but they had a very different politics. So. Um, President Nyerere really tried to build a sense of national identity, whereas in in Kenya we've had 40 years of political leaders playing upon ethnic difference. Um, And so the the results of that 2007 election turning into ethnically polarized violence are, I think, the the result of a, of a prolonged failure of political leadership. Um, and indeed, one of the arguments in the book is that um, national identity is not something that grows out of the out of the soil. It's something that's a political construct. Yeah, it's a, but it's a political construct I don't think we understand terribly well. We understand something about it, presumably. But, you know, as I'm, as I was listening to your comments, I'm framing my next question in my mind. And my next question, I, I'm going to Reword it, perhaps. My next question was going to be, so where does that leave us? Of course, the us there is a little bit uh, peculiar, as I said here listening, and I thought, well, I think part of the us is those of us who want to uh, do something about this, this failure of democracy to develop into something meaningful. Uh, it also, of course, refers to us as observers and, tr- and students of the process. So I want to start with that role, and we'll come – I, I want to end with our – conversation about policy implications, which is the last third or so of the book, and I think, for me, the most difficult to accept, but I, I want to I wait on that for a second. Sure. The, let's talk about this puzzle as students uh, and, and economists rather than policy um, recommendations, recommendation makers. Um, you talk in the book about democracy taking in, you know, needing institutions to develop, and one of the ways that you stress is that that takes time. And I wonder if that's true. I wonder what we know about that. Obviously, it takes other things as well. They don't naturally grow, some of these institutions. And I was thinking of counterexamples, or maybe there's only one. But the one that jumped to mind was is Germany after World War II. You know, Germany in World War – after World War I, the Weimar Republic was uh, this democratic experiment that died very tragically uh, with Hitler – he was democratically elected, took, then took power, um, and people said, well, Germany wasn't ready for democracy. They didn't have you – know, they'd gone through too much of the Kaiser, Bismarck, et cetera, and they just needed more time. Well, World War II came along, and afterwards, democracy was imposed on Germany, and they did fine. They seemed to be a, a thriving democracy. Um, are they a counterexample? Uh, or the exception that proves the rule, or is there? Am I missing something? I think um, uh, Germany. Um, first of all, it, I think it was it was easier in um, in a high income society um, or a prosperous society. Uh, it was certainly easier in a neighbourhood where um, other countries were democratic. Germany did have. Um, a 
a fairly long democratic history as well as bouts of autocracy. Um, and, and, and also, of course, Germany was, was not left on its own. I mean, this sort of anticipates the policy part, but um, uh, America stationed uh, many thousands of troops in Germany for a long time. Um, Germany was rapidly stitched into um, both European institutions, the European community, which um, made democracy a sort of condition of, of membership, and so there was, and the and the various sort of semi-global institutions, um, like the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. These were sort of democracy clubs. Um, so Germany, uh, I would argue, had an easier time, but it also had a lot of sort of international um, support. It's true of Japan as, all, as well. Again, yes. a country that had very little democratic uh, history and suddenly is transformed by fiat essentially into a democracy and it pretty much has, seems to have grown. It's um, taken root, it, as they say. But again, it had a um, – it was in the context of prosperity – and um, it was um, uh, with a with a lot of um, support for international support, and especially American support. There wasn't much particular prosperity at the time. It it had the tools for prosperity, right? They were yes. I mean, it was possible. It was possible fairly rapidly to establish prosperity. Yeah, it's pretty. The interesting question, of course, is whether some of the countries we're talking about in the bottom billion have that same potential, and, and what's holding them back. Obviously, you've given that a lot of thought. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure many of them do have the potential for, for rapid transformation to prosperity. Um, and the, you know, the argument in the book is, is that um, kind of there are, there are two, if you like, meta-public goods, that are, one of which is accountability um, and the other of which is internal security, um, without which uh, that movement to prosperity is uh, difficult. Absolutely. Before we turn to the policy recommendations in the last part of the book, I'd like to turn to a methodological question. Your book is filled with an incredible wealth of knowledge and detail. You've got a vast understanding of the history, the facts, the incentives, the reality. At the same time, you've been an academic economist of a more traditional sort. You've run dozens, probably hundreds, probably thousands of regressions trying to tease out causation in the historical record, the connection between democracy and violence, democracy and income, many, many other variables. And these variables are invariably measured imperfectly. Um, And some of your policy recommendations are based on these statistical analyses. You're not alone in this kind of work. It's been very common in the last 10 to 20 years as data on various phenomena have been collected. Early on in your book, you discuss one of your analyses and say – Controlling for the other characteristics that were likely to matter, you did such and such. One problem with the statistical approach is that one never has the data on all the other characteristics that are likely to matter. The second problem that others have brought up is the question of causation. When you find two things together, it's often difficult, maybe impossible, to know which variable is causing the other. In light of these problems, why do you believe that such statistical work is more reliable than a more intuitive approach based on facts and observation? Oh, I I wouldn't even say that it is more reliable. I'd say that um, 
we're looking for the the conjunction of um, of what the statistical evidence seems to be saying and what um, uh, people immersed in uh, the um, sort of the case study, the policy experience um, are saying. So we're looking for the, conf- the confluence of those two approaches. Um, let me say a little bit on the statistical approach. Um, I had sort of three big propositions on the proneness to conflict in my work with Aga Huffler. Um, uh, one was that the, the, the level of, of income mattered. One was that the growth of income mattered. And one was that the structure of income mattered, the dependence upon natural resource revenues. Um, now, since I first made those propositions, um, all three of them have been explored more thoroughly um, and much better instruments have been used. Uh, and the, um, the evidence still points, uh, still supports those propositions. The, um, on the level of income and the risks from natural resource dependence, um, there's new and uh, very, very sophisticated work by uh, Tim Besley uh, and uh, Thorsten Person, um, which is not published yet, but is available on their website, which is a very stringent test of those propositions. Um, I was really surprised that um, given the stringency of their test, they're, they're, they're finding um, statistically significant results, but they are. Um, on the importance of growth, there was the previous work of Ted Miguel. So um, uh, the, the propositions that um, Anchor and I initially floated are, are looking more, not less robust. Um, uh, can these things be nailed statistically? No, I don't think they can. Um, but they're looking likely. And don't, don't forget that in the policy world, um, policy can't wait for 100 years whilst um, economics sorts itself out. Um, policy is being made on the hoof day by day. Um, there are over 100,000 United Nations peacekeepers being deployed around the world. Should there be more of them or should there be less of them? What's the balance of the evidence say? Um, Huffler and I and uh, Thodebond have done a first analysis of the statistical effect of peacekeeping, and we find uh, that it's, uh, as far as we can see, it's effective. Uh, is that a definitive study? Very much not. Um, we hope to encourage other people to do a better job on it. Um, it took us a long time just to get the, the basic data on peacekeeping, so I can see why there wasn't a lot of statistical work before us. Um, but the field is open for a, for a lot more work. Um, but does, do, do the statistical results um, uh, form a a definitive basis for policy? Of course not. Uh, but now then, let's look what the, um, what the practitioner academics and the, and the political scientists say. Um, and there, the, um, by, by its nature, there's no, there's no one view, but there are a lot of very informed people um, who are saying the same thing. 
um, on peacekeeping, I was, I was very encouraged that um, when I did the Copenhagen consensus, I, uh, I pitched peacekeeping as a, as a, as a sensible policy. Um, my commentator was Professor Andy Mack, who's the uh, originator of the Human Security Report, and he used to be at the heart of the United Nations peacekeeping effort. So if anybody could see what was wrong with it, he could. And of course, a lot is wrong with it. But his view was unambiguously that more money should be spent on this, and that it was good value for money. Um, so there, there are, and the, and the panel of Nobel Prize-winning economists who formed the assessment team for the Copenhagen Consensus chose peacekeeping as one of the ways in which um, spending international public money looked to be good value. So they formed a judgment, which was a mixture of the statistical evidence and the um, and the policy evidence. Um, and I think, I think policymakers just have to take that judgment. Is it uh, more or less likely um, to be a good idea to to increase peacekeeping or to, or to reduce it? I think the danger is that at times statistical findings give a patina of scientific um, reliability that it may not deserve. And I, um, I'm incre- I've become increasingly skeptical of the value of sophisticated statistical analysis because it often doesn't seem to convince its opponents that may be simply because they're biased or it may be because there is an um, inherent problem with trying to measure some of these things uh, in a reliable way. No, I have a lot of sympathy with that. Um, I mean, my own um, judgments are not, you know, they're not, they're not just based on statistics. I, I, I've... Um, I run a, a research center on the economies of Africa, and I've focused my entire professional life, which is now disturbingly long, nearly 40 <laughs> years, um, on Africa. Um, and, and I've done that because I believe that um, statistics without knowledge of context can be very dangerous. Um, so I've tried to accumulate over 40 years um, as, you know, as much sort of ground truth thing as possible. So um, it's, a, it's some combination of uh, a statistics and judgment. Well, let's turn to the recommendations in the book that make up the last part of the book because they're, they're controversial. And, um, and as you say, they're probably – I assume they're based on both some statistics and some intuition from the facts on the ground. You're a advocate of more intervention – into the political process of very poor countries. What's the case to be made there? Well, the... Um, External intervention, I should Yes, I mean, the, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the first case is that, um, to go back to our earlier discussion, um, the process of internal accountability um, is often not working very well. Um, we're just doing this interview immediately following the uh, results of the Iranian elections, where um, there's, of course, grave reason to think that um, uh, citizens' preferences have been ignored. Yeah, by the um, way, this is we, we've, we're interviewing. Uh, we're doing this interview in two parts. We opened before the election, and we're finishing it uh, afterwards. So that's why the dating is a little bit off. This fine. today's June fifteenth. Go ahead, two thousand and nine. Um, 
so there's, there's plenty of reason to believe that um, the, the internal struggles within these societies uh, are often going wrong, that um, ordinary citizens are not effectively able to hold government to account. Um, now, so the question is then, uh, can the international community do anything about it? And I suppose there's a prior ethical question of should it do anything about it? I mean, let's, let's, let's discuss that prior ethical question for a moment. Um, is it colonialist um, to, uh, uh, to, to wish to do anything about that? Um, and that's a, um, a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty fatuous uh, accusation. It's an accusation which um, uh, is sometimes occasionally made against me, um, never by Africans, I should say. Um, but um, uh, if, you th- if you think about it, it's a ludicrous conflation. We know what colonialism was. It was um, foreign empires which themselves were not democratic, um, invading other territories and running those territories in the interest of the political elite of the uh, imperial power. Um, am I proposing that? No. If you can't tell the difference between that and a temporary intervention by the international community under the auspices of the United Nations, um, with the express purpose of increasing the accountability of governments to their own citizens, um, then, as I say, if you can't tell the difference between those two, you're not a very subtle use of political science. So, ethically, um, I just don't see that there's an issue. The the struggles for um, citizens to be able to hold their governments to account have been prolonged struggles around the world over the last couple of centuries, and often um, there's been international assistance of various forms uh, in winning that struggle. So um, there seems to me no issue of legitimacy in saying that the international community should have the objective of strengthening accountability of government to citizen. So the real issue is not uh, ethical it's whether it's feasible. Um, and? And, uh, I'm and a skeptic. sometimes... I'm a skeptic on the ethical issue. I'll come back to that. But okay. I'm also a skeptic on the feasibility. So do the feasibility first. Well, I think the um, there's more basis for skepticism on the um, feasibility issue because often it really isn't feasible. Um, now, the question is, if sometimes it isn't feasible, should we nevertheless try in conditions where, there, where it is feasible? So suppose for the sake of argument at the moment that in one country it's feasible for us to help and another country it isn't. Um, should the fact that we can't help everywhere debar us from helping anywhere? And again, that would be a very odd ethical proposition um, and it's like saying, because we can't save the lives of all children, we shouldn't save the lives of any children. It would just be ridiculous. So the issue is not, is it feasible everywhere to make governments accountable to citizens? Obviously not. Rather, the question is, are there contexts in which um, international action could strengthen accountability of government to citizens? 
And there I think it's um, very likely that the answer is yes, sometimes in relatively modest ways uh, and sometimes in more dramatic ways. Well, let me... But, go ahead. But I should say that I, I'm not um, advocating, um, as it were, Iraq too. I'm not advocating... Um, uh, troops uh, flying in against the uh, and 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 uh, putting down an established government. Um, so, so uh, what are you advocating? What do you, what level of intervention do you see as helpful? I think there's a there's a whole range. Um, I'll give you one very 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 simple example, which is which is follow the money. Um, uh, and th- th- this is uh, this is our aid money that um, often by providing aid without um, sufficient budgetary transparency, we're inadvertently um, empowering the crooks. So one of the proposals in Wars, Guns and Votes is to have um, independent international verification for situations in which budget support, which is giving money to governments uh, to, to use in their budget, um, is uh, is okay, uh, okay in the sense that the budget systems are sound enough to prevent the money being kept being uh, stolen by the by the political crooks. Uh, and at the moment, we don't do that. Um, the, we often provide budget support um, in contexts where really we know that uh, budget systems are uh, are just not not adequate. Um, now, that's not a matter of being accountable to ourselves. It's not a matter of being concerned that uh, donor money is, uh, is not being properly used. It's a matter of um, re- only, support- only providing money in contexts in which um, governments are reporting to their own citizens how they're using the money. So it's not a matter of building accountability systems to us. It's a matter of insisting on accountability systems to locals. Okay. So starting with the money seems to me not a bad idea. agree with that. Um, the more controversial areas are in terms of security. And, uh, and I suppose the most, the most controversial proposal in the book um, is the idea that we should protect democratically elected governments uh, from uh, threats from their own armies. Um, so we should protect democratic governments against being deposed by a coup d'etat. And that's not, um, that's not inconsequential. Uh, in the last year in Africa alone, there have been four successful coups, um, two of them against uh, democratically elected governments. And in, uh, in all four cases, the African Union condemned the coup and refused to, to recognize the new government. Um, but, of course, that wasn't enough to, for the coup leaders to go back to barracks. Um, and I think uh, timely intervention, um, timely military intervention, for example, by AFRICOM, um, could have provided a, a, would have actually discouraged these things in the first place. The very, the very threat of timely military intervention would have discouraged these things. So you wouldn't even need to use AFRICOM to put down coups. The fact that there was the risk that AFRICOM would intervene would be enough to discourage them. 
Well, let me raise what I consider a legitimate ethical issue that you've you've dismissed, and then I want to challenge the feasibility issue a little bit and get your response. And I think that'll uh, we'll be out of time. On the ethical issue, I, I don't accuse you of being a colonialist. I assume you're not. Uh, it could be wrong, of course, but I, you've got a good track record that suggests that you're not interested in um, pillage or plunder or ex- exploitation of of a native country's uh, natural resources or anything like that. You're an altruist. You're a good-hearted person. Your intentions are are of the best. I think the issue is whether you are uh, enabling others to um, give cover to them. And the argument here would be one that our listeners will recognize as a bootlegger and Baptist argument, the idea that a regulation often passes with the support of those who have high-minded, legitimate reasons and those who have less than high-minded reasons and uh, self-interested reasons. So my worry isn't that if you were in charge that it would go badly, although it might because you have imperfect information. My worry would be that your justification will allow others to pursue uh, less attractive agendas. And in particular, in the ter- that ties into the feasibility issue, um, the international community is not uh, – an entity. It is not a conscious being. It is not a decider. It does not bear responsibility. It faces no incentives that individuals face. So it doesn't decide. It is a emergent phenomena. Even the UN is not under anyone's control with responsibility and feedback incentives to make sure that the right thing is done. So I'm wondering why in the face of the, pl- the public choice issues, we could call them, why you would have any optimism that these interventions would be done for the reasons that you would care about as opposed to the reasons that more powerful and less attractive people would care about? Oh, I think there's a, a simple and quite powerful answer there, which is that um, the within even within the Security Council, um, there are uh, three big democracies that have the power of veto, um, America, Britain, France. Um, in each of those democracies, we can... Um, we, can, we can, to a reasonable extent, count upon the domestic democratic process uh, to discipline government. Now, it doesn't always work, um, but it would have to break down in all three simultaneously. Um, that might occasionally happen, but it would be a very rare event. Um, we're not aiming for perfection here. We're aiming for something which is trying to improve on a situation that's clearly broken. Um, do the citizens of, uh, of America, of Britain, of France, have an appetite to reestablish empire? Um, I think not. Um, do they have a, a genuine concern to try and uh, ameliorate the, the condition of um, of, of disempowered citizens in the poorest places in the world, yes, I think they do. Um, so, um, and, and is there a problem to be overcome in these countries? Very clearly. So, um, can we envisage situations where this power would be abused? Yes, I suppose we can. Um, how likely is that abuse relative to the 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 regular abuses of power that we see um, across the societies of the bottom billion at the moment. Well, I, I guess I'm less um, sanguine about the democratic process generally, even in the developed countries you mentioned. The history of USAID 
uh, I don't think is particularly attractive in terms of its impact. You could argue it just wasn't done well. The alternative view, which has been put forward by Bruce Buena de Mesquita here on this program, is that it's been done all too well. It just isn't done to serve the people that you're talking about, the ones who care about making no, Africans you know, That, I off. think, is absolutely right. Let, 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 let me be clear. That and I include the West general. I don't mean to pick on the United States. No, no, States. absolutely. But the, the reason why I wrote the, the bottom billion was that I feel in a democracy um, you, you, you can't get better policies than ordinary citizens understand. And uh, at the moment, the understanding of ordinary citizens about development um, is, is pretty poor. It's, it's, it's not moved beyond the, uh, the, the simple political gestures of the, of the politician kissing the baby. Um, and that's what allows the politician to kiss the baby at one level and aid his friends on another. That's right. But, uh, but is it possible to build a more informed citizenry? Um, yes, it is. Um, uh, the bottom billion itself has demonstrated that. There's over 100,000 copies out there already. Uh, there is an appetite um, for, uh, for people to get up to speed. Um, they don't just want to be fed the paps that they have been fed. Uh, and so, is it possible to build a more informed citizenry? Undoubtedly. And the world, I think, as you point out, would be a much better place if that were the case. Yes, and, it, and it, it's not, it, these issues are not that difficult. Um, uh, this is far less complicated than getting people up to speed on, say, financial regulation uh, or inflation unemployment issues. Yeah. Far less complicated. Well, that's a nice optimistic note to close on. My guest today has been Paul Collier of Oxford University, author of Wars, Guns, and Votes. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for inviting me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.